Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. We're up to podcast number seven now, and as I promised last time, we're going to talk about foreign fighters. So leading up to the attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand on March the 15th, a lot of the attention was refocused from that of Islamic State and what was happening to the remnants of the Caliphate, whether or not the terrorist group would have any territory left at all, or in fact would in fact be destroyed by the Americans, the Russians, the Syrians, the Iranians, the Turks, just about everybody else who was fighting in north, northern Syria, northern Iraq. And then the attention focused on the far right, as it is still, in some ways, located there. But I do want to return to the issue of foreign fighters, and more specifically, what we need to do about those who are still alive, may in fact be imprisoned in either Syria or Iraq, may be living in refugee camps, and who want to come home. Before we do that, though, let's remind ourselves as to what the scale of this problem is. First and foremost, when we use the term foreign fighter, often called also foreign terrorist fighter or foreign traveler, what we are referring to are people who leave their home countries, travel abroad, and join up with a terrorist group. The most common example we've dealt with over the past couple of years is in fact Islamic State, or IS, or ISIS, or ISIL, or Daesh, or whatever you want to call them. It is estimated that upwards of 40,000 people from more than 100 nations left their homelands to join Islamic State somewhere between 2012 and 2016, 2017. A lot of those were killed in other airstrikes or by ground forces in the region. Some were killed in drone strikes. A number are imprisoned. A number may in fact have gone to other conflict zones. And as I describe in my third book, The Lesser Jihads, there are any number of Islamic State affiliates around the world that would act as an attractive place to locate for those who see the Islamic State as sort of yesterday's group in some way with the caliphate being destroyed and the territory being reduced to, well, as of today, April 2nd, just about nothing. And there's a whole bunch of people that are in limbo, some in prison, as I said, some in refugee camps, some of whom still maintain a certain fervor for Islamic State, still believe in the program, still want to accomplish the goals and dreams that Islamic State have, and some are, are begging to come home, asking their governments to repatriate them. Therefore, there's the question, what should we do about foreign fighters? As I explained in my second book on Western foreign fighters, this has become quite a dilemma. You can divide the foreign fighter phase, I suppose, or phenomenon rather, into three phases. There's the before, the during, and the after. In the before phase, countries really should prevent their citizens from traveling abroad to join terrorist groups or to engage in terrorist acts internationally. Meaning that if you have evidence, or in many cases intelligence, that suggests that person X wants to leave to join Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, Jamaat Islamiyad, Hezbollah um, al-Sham, or whatever terrorist group, that you actually have a moral and maybe legal obligation to prevent them from doing so. The problem is, if you do have information that somebody wants to leave to join a terrorist group, but that information is not sufficient enough to actually arrest and lay charges and bring to court, then you've got a big problem. What you in fact, in effect have done is create a very angry, disappointed person 
who wanted to leave to join a terrorist group and was prohibited by doing so by the state, which means that that person can redirect his or her anger away from the so-called enemy abroad to the enemy within, meaning the government and its citizens. Here in Canada, we have at least two cases where people who wanted to travel abroad to join terrorist groups were prevented from doing so by having their passports seized. In October of 2014, in a two-day span, there were two successful terrorist attacks in which two people died, a Canadian, two Canadian military officers died, at the hands of two different people who wanted to leave and were prevented from doing so. So that's the before phase. What about the during phase? Well, as we've noted, a lot of terrorists who do go abroad are killed. They're killed in military battles. They are killed in air or drone strikes. Some of them are killed in terrorist attacks, either as suicide bombers or are in fact interdicted by local law enforcement or security forces. Then we have the afterphase. Those that didn't get killed and therefore didn't do us a favor by becoming dead, as I've always said, and it sounds a little bit dismissive and perhaps not the best thing to say, but a dead terrorist is a good terrorist. What we have now is any number of people, thousands of people, who left their countries, have been arrested, and now want to come home. This has posed a big dilemma for the nations from whence these people left. And the reactions or the responses to this challenge have been varied. Some countries appear to have stated that, yes, they will take their citizens back. I think more countries have stated quite the opposite. They want nothing to do with their citizens. In some cases, they've actually revoked their citizenship, which is a huge controversial issue. And I'm thinking in case of the young lady from the United Kingdom who had her citizenship revoked, despite the fact she doesn't have a second citizenship on which to rely. And normally under international law, you can't revoke citizenship if in fact the person doesn't have a second one, i.e. dual citizenship. In the case of Shimima Begum in the, in the United Kingdom, the UK government has proposed somewhat incredulously that because her family was from Bangladesh, she can rely on her ancestral Bangladeshi citizenship. The Bangladeshis have said, ah, uh, no, she can't. Therefore, she's become stateless. So this is a big problem. A lot of countries listening to their citizens have said, you know what? Uh, we don't want these people back. They made their bed. We have no lie in it. We don't care what happens to them. And to a certain extent, the people who left the country and so-called made their beds did say things that were quite emotional. They talked about rejecting their homelands. They talked about their hatred for their homelands. In many cases, they actually burned their passports. There's a famous video of a Canadian from Calgary, Alberta named Farah Sheerden who burned his passport on camera and essentially disavowed his Canadian citizenship. So it's no surprise that in a lot of countries, and I've seen the reactions on, on a lot of fronts in social media, and people have said to me personally that we have no obligation to repatriate these people. They have in effect become the enemies of our countries, Canada, United States, United Kingdom, whatever. And as a result, they have no right to come back here. We don't want them to come back here. And they can essentially rot in prison or face justice in the countries in which they're arrested. And we'll get back to that in a second. A more fundamental issue, though, is whether or not there is an obligation to repatriate one's citizens. So if these people did indeed leave the country, i.e. they weren't interdicted, they didn't have their passports seized, 
and they successfully went abroad to join a terrorist group, what are the legal obligations? I'm sure it depends from country to country. In Canada, for example, under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, all Canadians have a right to travel and they have a right to return, meaning we cannot prohibit them from coming back. That's a legal obligation under the Charter. What about a moral obligation? Do states have a moral obligation to go out of their way to repatriate their citizens who left their countries, who renounced their countries, and who now had a change in mind and want to come back? I'll leave that issue for more philosophers to determine if the moral obligation is there. My position is quite simple. Yes, it's true that people have a right to return to their homelands. If they make their way back, we have no choice but to allow them to come back. They are Canadians. But I take a firm stand on whether or not the Canadian government should actually facilitate, i.e. go out of its way, to repatriate these citizens. And in fact, a lot of countries have stated that the situation in Iraq and Syria is still very, very precarious. The war is not over. And they want to, they do not want to place their consular or diplomatic officials at risk by traveling to these out-of-way places to essentially serve as government representatives or spokespeople for citizens that have been caught up in jail. I'm not sure that's really a valid excuse. Certainly journalists have gone in and and out of these areas. I have some friends who are academics who have traveled in and out of areas that are caught up in, in conflict zones and they seem to be okay. So it seems to me that the our officials are at safe is a bit of an excuse that countries are using to demonstrate why they can't go there. In actual fact, it's because they don't want to go there. So this issue of obligation, I think, is still out there. Again, my position is quite clear. Uh, if these people are somehow able to affect their return to Canada, yes, we have to take them. The way I look at it, they got there in the first place. They evaded controls. They evaded scrutiny. They were able to get to Syria or Iraq or uh, Somalia or Nigeria or Afghanistan to join terrorist groups. So they can they can find their way back on, on their own accord. Others, of course, disagree with me in this regard. They think that a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. Here I am channeling my inner Justin Trudeau from the 2015 election. And that Canada must do everything, move heaven and earth to locate, provide consular assistance and bring these people back at public expense, i.e. the government has to foot the bill to bring them back to Canada. I think that if you took an opinion poll here in Canada, you would find that the vast majority of Canadians do not agree with this position, that they think the government should not repatriate these people because of the risk they pose. And I'll get back to that a little bit later as well. I do think, though, there's an exception to instances in which government should, in fact, undertake efforts to repatriate so-called foreign fighters. And the cases I'm referring to are not really fighters. They're the children of foreign fighters. So we do know that Islamic State created a functioning society. It ran the tax system. It provided parks for the kids. It collected taxes, etc., etc., etc. And we do know that in, un, under the cal- so-called caliphate, an awful lot of children were born. They were going to be the first brand new citizens of this brand new social experiment. So there are all kinds of kids, toddlers, two-year-olds, four-year-olds, etc., that are caught in some kind of illegal or diplomatic limbo in prisons in Syria and Iraq or in refugee camps. 
I do think we should bring the kids back, especially the younger ones. These kids did not go there of their own accord. They were either brought there as infants by their parents, or they, were in fact, were born in an Islamic state. They have no agency in this regard, and they should, in fact, be repatriated. Now, here's where the rub comes in. There are also those that think that women who joined Islamic State should be allowed to come back or, in fact, be have their return facilitated. And here's where I disagree. Based on my experience looking at women who traveled abroad, they, in fact, did exercise agency. They went there deliberately. I don't buy this notion that most of these women were brainwashed or coerced or forced to go. They, in fact, were willing members of Islamic State and they should face the music. What this implies is that children should, in fact, be taken away from their parents, either their mothers, because the fathers have been killed. And we know of many cases in Iraq and Syria where female members of Islamic State would be asked to remarry another foreign fighter once their first husbands or second husbands or third husbands in some cases were killed. But they were, in fact, functioning members of the group. And there's been a lot of good academic work done lately on the roles that women played. So I don't think these women are dupes. I think that they made a conscious choice, and they have to pay for that choice. Some would say, well, how can you take a child away from its mother? Isn't that going to be traumatic? Isn't that going against human rights? I'm not sure that's the case. We have instances here in Canada, for example, where Children's Aid Society, which is the government agency that looks out for child welfare, can remove a child from an environment where the child's physical, emotional, psychological or sexual safety is, is at, at hand, where the state has determined that the parents are not fit to raise that child. They put the child in foster care, either temporarily or permanently. I remember a case a couple of years ago in Winnipeg, where a neo-Nazi couple was raising their child to be a neo-Nazi, and in fact called him Hitler. And the local Children's Aid Society says, uh, no, you can't do that. You're endangering the child's welfare, and took the child away from them. Look, these kids have already been through a lot of trauma already. They're young kids. Taking them away from their mothers will be, yes, it would be absolutely traumatic. But is it any more traumatic than leaving them there in country? In refugee camps where, where they're living in squalor, where there's diseases, where there's lack of food, where there's lack of things to do? Should we just leave them there? I do think these children should be repatriated. And, you know, kids are resilient. They, they'll get over it eventually. As for the mothers, those that were part of Islamic State, and here's where also there are many who would disagree with me, I think that they need to stand justice in the country where their offenses were committed. These people made deliberate choices to join Islamic State. They traveled to Syria. They traveled to Iraq. They took place in, they took part in terrorist acts or supported terrorist acts in those countries. That's where their where their crimes were committed, and that's where they should face justice. Many have argued that the Iraqi and Syrian justice systems are not sufficient enough, that they engage in capital punishment, for example, and I acknowledge that, and I personally don't believe in capital punishment, but who am I, or who are you, or who is anybody else for that matter, to tell the Iraqis or the Syrians how to implement their justice system? I think it's arrogant of us to say that a Canadian citizen should be brought home and not forced to go through another country's justice system because we disagree with the particularities of that justice system. There are many instances of Canadians who are committed crimes abroad who go through the particular judicial process in that country. And in some cases, once the judicial process has been completed, 
then we can engage in extradition, meaning bringing the Canadian back to serve the sentences back here in Canada. And there's many countries with which we have the extradition process. I don't know if Iraq and Syria are part of that list. But I do think that there's a fundamental justice issue here, and that is that the Iraqis and the Syrians, Iraqi and the Syrian people, will want to see justice done in their lands, in their territories, and not allow these people to go and escape from the crimes they committed, only to face justice in, in the Canadian or Western judicial system. Complicating all this is that a lot of the people who are being held are in fact being held by the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a Kurdish group fighting in northern Syria. There's been a lot said about the Kurds, their struggles with the Syrian government, with the Iraqi government. The overarching problem is that the Syrian Democratic Forces and the Kurds do not constitute a state, which means they don't have a full judicial system, they don't have a full penitentiary system, and in many instances, the SDF, as they're called, have asked, in fact, begged Western countries to take their citizens back because they simply can't house them. They don't have the facilities, they don't have the resources, they don't have the systems to try them in the same way that we here in Canada and the Western world do. And therefore, they've said, look, you've got to take these guys home. So I, I think in the end, this is a very, very complicated phenomenon. We've got public opinion on one hand. We've got government legal and moral obligations on the other. And then there's something we haven't talked about yet. What th threat do these people pose? Well, again, it's complicated. Some work that was done by an Norwegian scholar for whom I have a lot of time, Thomas Heghammer, said that historically somewhere in the neighborhood of one in nine returning foreign fighters engages in a terrorist attack. And in fact, we have seen terrorist attacks primarily in Europe that have been perpetrated by foreign fighters, i.e. those that fought abroad with terrorist groups and then came back to their homelands to carry out attacks. I'm thinking 2015 in Paris, 2016 in Belgium. Those are just two examples. So the threat is not zero, but it's not 100%. It's somewhere in the middle. The problem lies with determining exactly what the threat is. If you ask the terrorists themselves, they will all say that they've changed their minds. They've seen the light. They've abandoned the cause. All they want to do is come home. Look, we know that people lie. We know that people hide the truth. We know that people will say anything to get back to their homelands. So I think it's incumbent upon governments to determine the level of risk, the level of threat, before they start thinking about repatriating people. The other problem is that when they return from Iraq or Syria or Somalia or Mali or Nigeria or whatever, then they become the problem of the security services. So if you work for CSIS or if you work the RCMP or any other law enforcement or security intelligence organization and you've identified some people, your co-patriots, who've gone abroad to fight in terrorist groups, they're not your problem while they're out of theater. They're somebody else's problem. When they come back, they become your problem. And the challenge then is how do you shuffle the resources on the board so that you can watch these people? You can have them under surveillance. You can investigate them. You can make cases that you can bring to court. There are those that say, well, just try them based on what they did in Iraq and Syria. The problem there is that a lot of the information is not collected, either isn't there, or is not sufficient from an evidentiary perspective to lay charges in a Western court. In other words, they may have in fact engage in all kinds of activities abroad. You can't charge them. You don't have that bulk of evidence. Some countries like Australia have had a very interesting uh, perspective or a different approach to this 
In Australia, there's a law that says it's an offense merely to go to a certain area of the world that's been deemed an area of high terrorist activity. In other words, under this Australian law, you don't have to prove that somebody did something nefarious or contravened terrorist law to actually lay charges. The mere fact that they went to that area is sufficient to actually bring them to court. They're the only country that I know of that has this particular law. I'd be curious if other countries might want to go down there. So bringing them home is problematic. You'll have some pushback by security intelligence and law enforcement agencies that are already working flat out on other files, other terrorist files, other counterintelligence files. We here in Canada are having an election in 2019. A lot of concern about election interference. So it's, it becomes a resource issue. And it, as I've said on many time, in many occasions, it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul when you're talking about resource allocation. One final thing I want to mention is that there has been talk about creating an international court to deal with foreign fighters, which I think is a great idea in principle. We've seen, however, that the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which deals with uh, crimes like genocide, crimes against humanity, takes years, if not decades, to reach verdicts. Radovan Karadzic, who was a major warlord in Bosnia in the 1990s, just recently was found guilty of his crimes. So that took over 20 years to, to actually bring him to justice. So while I think that an international court to deal with foreign fighters would be in some ways an ideal solution, there are a whole host of issues on where would it be located? What kinds of resources would it be given? Can it, in fact, gather evidence to a, a, an international standard that would withstand the, the, the test in a court? So I think there are a lot of questions about this. The idea is great, but I'm not so sure that it can be implemented anytime soon. And we're faced with this problem now. There are tens of thousands of surviving fighters from Islamic State and other terrorist groups. Many have argued that if we do not repatriate them, what we're doing, in fact, is laying the ground for the next terrorist group or the next terrorist wave. And I can't disagree with that. In the end, I don't think there's a solution to this problem. There are problems or challenges in leaving them in place in situ. There are challenges in bringing them home. There are challenges right across the spectrum when it comes to foreign fighters. So watch this space. I think there will be a lot more debate on this issue. It's it's not going away. I know for a fact that a lot of people here in Canada are debating what is the best approach to do with foreign fighters. If we bring them back, do we monitor them? Do we put them through so-called de-radicalization programs or disengagement programs? What do we actually do with these folks once they come back? Do we charge them? Do we not charge them? This is a very, very deep and convoluted issue that's going to be unfolding for years. I'll keep commenting on it. I'll keep writing on it as, as things pop up. You might want to keep an eye out for that. That's it for podcast number seven. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me on my email address, borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at borealisaves, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. You can leave comments on YouTube or access this audio on iTunes. I'll talk to you again in the fortnight. Until then, stay safe.